Welcome to episode 19 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is July 17th. And in our episode, we're going to discuss disease and epidemics in the medieval Islamic world. This episode is going to focus on how disease affected the medieval Islamic world and also how medieval Islamic intellectuals thought about disease more broadly. We will also examine the broader context of these ideas and consider how they reflected during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest for this episode is Justin Stearns, who is an associate professor in Arab Crossroads Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi. Justin's first book was entitled Infectious Ideas, Contagion in Premodern Islamic and Christian Thought in the Western Mediterranean. And his second book is an edition and translation of the discourses of Al-Hassan Al-Yossi, a Moroccan Sufi intellectual during the 17th century. Justin has also published on the history of science, the Black Death, and Islamic intellectual history more generally, with a focus on the Iberian Peninsula and Morocco. His next book project, entitled Revealed Science, the Natural Sciences in Islam in the Age of Al-Hassan Al-Yusi builds on his work on Al-Yusi that looks at the social status of the natural sciences in early modern Morocco. So hi, Justin. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you both for having me on. So as usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 where we're at. So Merle, do you want to start us off by telling us how things are in Annapolis? Sure. So I think we're in the position that many people are in, in terms of long-term planning of trying to figure out what we're doing with childcare education in the fall. At the moment, we have to decide whether or not our kids are going to go to their daycare, or if we're going to, I guess, keep doing what we've been doing or get a nanny or something like that. So that's kind of the broader question. Do they remember their daycare? Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I can't really, you know, they're two and a half. So how do I, how do I ask them that, right? Do you remember your daycare? They remember their teacher talk about her from time to time, although they've seen her less in the last month, obviously, now that it's over because it ran a normal school year course. The other, I guess, exciting short-term thing is we had an electrician come into the house today because there were a few things that have been a problem for the last several months and we put them off for a while for obvious reasons. So that was interesting. Came in, he was masked up, but we kept the kids outside on the back deck. And I stayed on the back deck as well, except when I had to go inside and I was masked up. And then after we left, which was in the evening, we quickly shepherded our kids upstairs so that they weren't downstairs. And we turned off the HVAC and the AC actually for the entire evening, you know, just in case that the air wouldn't circulate, which is kind of an insane way to operate. But I imagine I'm not the only one doing something like that. I don't know. Have you done something like that, Lee? I mean, we had during lockdown, we brought in an electrician. We didn't take it as seriously. I mean, he, he put a mask on, we had masks on, kind of like stood pretty far away from each other, but it's a small apartment, so. Yeah, so what's happening in Jerusalem, Lee? So things seem to be heating up here in the second wave that I've been mentioning for several episodes now. We seem to be heading towards another lockdown, probably in the next few days, two weeks, week and a half or so. I'm pretty sure that will happen. Restaurants were supposed to close today, other than deliveries. But after protests, the government allowed them to stay open until Tuesday. So that's one thing. Another thing is that today I went to a pretty famous outdoor market here in Jerusalem, which was busy. Not as pre-COVID-19 times, but definitely crowded, very little to no, actually no social distancing. There have also been increasing political demonstrations here, so actually very close to our apartment, with a pretty large one on Tuesday that brought together thousands of people. And again... Almost everyone was masked, but there was no social distance. 
So you're all admitting that you're going to get locked down, but no one's doing anything that would perhaps stop the lockdown. I mean, there's very little science involved in these discourses, but the general idea is that if you're outdoors, you're in substantially less risk. I just want to point out that you've been understandably, and you should be ripping on the U.S.'s response to this, but you guys don't seem to be really that much better at this point. And in fact, I've seen many largely Jewish Americans ripping on Israel for basically failing. So, you know, you guys are just as screwed as us. Thank you very much. I mean, yes and no, right? So, so on one hand, it's very frustrating because people here did feel that we got this under control. And to a certain extent, the country really did. I mean, by locking down very quickly for, I mean, we can argue again whether the reasons for that were right or not, but they did it and they, they did bring COVID-19 under control. But losing control is very frustrating. I, I can definitely say that. So on one hand, there is that and, and there is a major failure there. But on the other hand, it is still important to keep things in proportion, I think. And deaths are still very low compared to most other countries, right? So we're still under 400 deaths. So even with the second wave. And where are you, Justin? I'm in Vermont, so it happens to be the state that has the best record at the moment in the United States. And actually compares favorably internationally. And, and that has almost, I mean, I could try to come up with all sorts of local pride stories, but I think it really has something to do with the fact that the state has only about 650,000 people in it. And so when you consider the low population density and the fact that people here are taking masking relatively seriously, and there's quite a bit of social distancing still going on, then it's understandable um, that the outbreaks here have actually been pretty minimal. Are people proud? I mean, do people speak about this proudly? In a negative way, it's been interesting to see how there have been sort of outbursts of almost like xenophobia towards other states. So there have been individual cases where people, you know, there's a lot of feeling that people with plates from the South or Jersey or wherever, you know, that people could be worried about people coming in. The state has been trying to exert a certain amount of moral authority over making everybody quarantine for two weeks if they enter the state. And so that's been going on. But because the numbers are really low, I mean, we're still talking for the entire state, uh, about 1,200 cases, 50 people have died since March for the whole state. You know, so it's, it's a handful of new cases every day. Things are going pretty well. Yeah, that seems to track pretty well with uh, one of our other guests who was also in Vermont and basically said that most people were masked up and following rather strict social distancing protocols. Again, I think low population density really helps. Do you get still go shopping, for example? Yes. Yeah, I go shopping. Um, for a while, I was like doing a pickup sort of thing where you order ahead and whatnot. But that has so many downsides. You never really get what you want. And so in the end, now I go into masks, of course, with copious amounts of hand sanitizer, um, but going into you know, grocery shopping as usual and in other ways for other stores for other things. But I have to say, I mean, the stores here are pretty much, you know, enforcing lots of plexiglass, lots of necessary hand sanitizing before you go come in and out. And again, after having been down in Princeton for much of the year, the striking thing here is that there just aren't that many people. So even if you have people going to a grocery store regularly, I never feel like I'm backed up against lots of people in a small space. And some of the more, so shall we say, crunchy, uh, organic local food stores are like keeping the absolute number of people inside the store at any given time. 
to a very, I mean, they have people standing at the exit and controlling you and making sure that you only have certain people. I mean, when one thinks about them in a public health perspective, these things really make a difference. So that was a really interesting reflection and a very different one from other places we've talked to people from just because of the, the population density. Yeah, definitely more optimistic. Yeah, no, that's true. How would you frame this in a in a medieval Islamic theological thinking about disease, right? I mean, we have certain ways you've just sketched them out in terms of, as you called it, crunchy or crunchier uh, grocery stores, and they're thinking one way, and maybe the price choppers of the world are thinking of another way. But how is there a general discourse about this and how it's thought in Islamic intellectual thought? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing, there's a couple of things, and, and then you're going to have to stop me now when I launch into mini lecture mode. But, but the, the essential thing here is to, is to say that the pre-modern Islamic world really needs to be understood as part of the pre-modern Abrahamic, monotheistic, Mediterranean world. So that a lot of the thing, ways in which Muslims thought about disease, and especially epidemic disease, had a lot in common with Jews and Christians as well, in terms of the, the basic science that they had recourse to, this kind of Galenic humoral medicine on the one hand, and also in terms of coming to I guess, a version of theodicy, right? Like, why is this happening to me? Why do I have to deal with this pain? And how do I understand that in light of the fact that I also believe in some way in a creator God who has spoken to us in the past, this classic sort of Abrahamic fashion. So if you think about it, Disease is an absence of health. What is health? Health is a balance. It's a balance. And, and, and for people in late antiquity uh, and, and onwards and anybody after Galen and reaching back to Hippocrates, what is health? Health is a balance of humors, of humors. You're, you have certain humors. These are tied up in relationship to the elements. It's the way that the world is created. And each person has a certain balance of humors within them, right? This is phlegm, blood, black bile, yellow bile. And when you have disease, somehow that balance has been brought out of kilter and you need to go to a doctor to figure out how to bring it back into kilter. And with epidemic disease, it's fascinating because this is all happening to a lot of people at the same time. And how does religion play a role here? Yeah. So religion, first of all, is like, well, why, what do we do with disease? Is, is this something, what is its function in our relationship with God, right? I and mean, if you go back to to scripture, to the Hebrew Bible, if you go and think about uh, moments such as, um, well, say Moses' sister or Miriam being struck down with leprosy or at some one point, or the book of Job, of course, is like kind of the classic case of like, why is this guy being afflicted with all of these terrible diseases and, that, and what, what do we do with that? In brief, religion says, hey, you know what? Disease is a good moment for you to reflect upon your relationship to the creator. Why do you have this? What is the relationship to God? What are you supposed to do about this? Are you supposed to, you can go to medicine and do something, but you're also supposed to reflect upon the fact that this world that you're living in is not the world that really matters. The world that really matters is the world to come. That is something which we find running through all of the Abrahamic faiths to some extent. What you just said implies that disease is not necessarily a bad thing to have. No, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It has a function in that sense. But I want to let be careful here. I don't want to give people the impression that simply because you believe in, in God uh, and in this kind of Abrahamic environment that because of that, you should be happy when you get sick. I think it's more that you're, you're being given the option of doing two things. First of all, you need to understand you can go and treat this according to medical traditions. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But second, it also does give you a moment, an opportunity to reflect upon the transience of this world and of this, this body, right? So those are two things. And for the most part, I think that religious authorities assumed that most believers would be happy to reflect upon this world and to go to medical professionals and to get help. But at the same time, from a more theological perspective, they said, hey, you know, this is also a moment of potential reflection. Does this hold true for different types of disease? So I'm thinking here, right, something like leprosy versus, say, plague versus, say, just a general cold. Does the same idea play out in different diseases or is there a nuance between different ones? So what I was, what I gave initially was this sort of broad overview of what you can do with disease. But yeah, sure. Once you start drilling down, then different diseases carry different meanings. And there is a tendency that's more pronounced, shall we say, especially in the Christian tradition, to look at various diseases and some of them specifically, specifically the ones that crop up in the New Testament um, and also for Christians and, and their Old Testament, metaphorically, right? So leprosy just jumps right out here. Why? Well, Jesus cures leprosy. There's a, a metaphor here to be had. And if again, if we go back to the example of Moses and Miriam, one of the reasons uh, and the potential of being cast out of the community, being brought back in, I mean, historians of medicine have argued pretty convincingly against this being leprosy, but the word, in, as I understand it, in Hebrew tzarat has been translated later on as leprosy by people. They've understood it that way. They want to call it psoriasis or whatever. There's other options that you could have there. But so individual diseases do become quite important in, in that sense. In Christianity, leprosy becomes as thinking as a trope or a metaphor for heretical or false beliefs. And this is probably one of the somewhat patriarchal attitudes that uh, against Miriam as well, because she in fact has, has stood up against her brother's authority and maybe is claiming her own prophetic status. So she gets slapped on the wrist, so to speak, with a little bit of leprosy, which then gets removed once she's brought back into the line. Leprosy is not as, as a, a good a metaphor in, in, the, in the Muslim tradition, it doesn't carry that over that saliency. That's where plague will come, because plague in, in the Muslim tradition does end up having quite a different role to play than it does in the Christian tradition, largely because the early Muslim community, as opposed to the early Christian community or the early Jewish community, so at a time period when scripture is still forming, comes into contact with plague. And that's what sets it apart from either of the other two Abrahamic traditions. So how do you Muslims think about plague? What is the role of plague specifically? So there's, as with all religious traditions, they think a lot, and then a lot of it isn't necessarily coherent because it, is, it draws on different scriptural sources in different moments. But just as the backdrop, right? So Islam emerges in the seventh century uh, out of Arabia, but quite early on following the Prophet's death. So in the 630s here, Muslims are, are moving into the Levant, into Israel-Palestine, and encountering Byzantine forces. And, and this expanding Muslim um, troops are, of course, engaging in what is what they consider to be a, a holy a form of holy struggle or jihad. And that's relevant here because as they prepare to meet the Byzantines and to advance the uh, uh, sort of the, the, the world of Islam, uh, if, if they, with proper intention, you die fighting, you become a martyr. Now, if with proper intention, you go off that these troops encounter the plague, some of the traditions that, that are ascribed to the prophet's companions and to the prophet himself also have you becoming a martyr. And so plague becomes a different disease than other diseases because it becomes tied up in these early expansion. In that sense, dying of plague 
with proper intention, meaning that you used to believe in God and whatnot, um, that can get you a very special status in the hereafter, which other diseases, dying of other diseases, uh, largely would not. So, but I actually want to point out here that this is a prophetic tradition. Not all Muslim scholars, many of the Muslim plague, plague treatises that I've read from the, from the post-Black death period don't even mention this tradition. So what's striking to see is how some scholars take this tradition very seriously. They put it at the heart of their discussion of plague and say, hey, if you're a upright believer and you believe in God and you're doing all of this with the correct motivation, you can become a martyr if you die from plague. Whereas others don't even mention that whole concept and they're like, you know, we think you should run away from this no matter what. And are there different levels of martyrdom or are we talking about exactly the same level? So dying in battle and dying of plague are exactly the same. Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's kind of an explosion of martyrdom, if you want to, in the, the, the third, second, third, fourth centuries after Islam, when all sorts of things can get you martyrdom after a while. Drowning can get you martyrdom. Having your house fall down on top of you can get you martyrdom. So I think that we see a desire in some parts of Islamic society for all of these terrible things that can happen to you and your family to result in martyrdom. And later, more, shall we say, um, punctilious Muslim scholars start going in and saying, actually, there's their footnotes, there are clauses here, if you actually want to get martyrdom, and they and they start walking you through these, these issues. And that's one of the places where they say, you know what, if you're running away from the plague, when you get it and die, no martyrdom for you. But I don't really think there's a difference between like grade A and grade B martyrdom. So, so there's no hierarchy, but there is a question of inclusivity. I mean, who is included within this group or who isn't? Yeah, and all of this goes into a broader um, anxiety on the part of Muslim scholars, I think, about the, the quality of the believer's faith, right? I mean, you really have to entrust yourself to God. This basic concept in, in Islamic theology of tawakkul, of placing your reliance on God. If you exhibit that and you die for plague, then you get martyrdom. I mean, I'm mostly as, I'm, as I talk to you, guys, uh, you about this, I'm, I'm drawing on this one very important and influential treatise uh, from the 15th century by a guy by, uh, named Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani who lived in Cairo. And he wrote a, a real thick tome on the benefit of the plague. He was, was very influential because he was a very influential scholar, but there were, he had contemporaries and people before and after him who differed with him substantially and said that, and didn't talk about martyrdom and mostly spoke about the need to run away from the plague. They considered it to be contagious, which Ibn Hajar did not. He did not think it was contagious. So there's a debate there as well, but we're, we're getting down here more into the weeds. Yeah. Can I just ask one more question on these early issues? And maybe this is a more meta question. Why is it from an academic's perspective, there's been a lot less work done on this to, it seems to me, to tie this into other plague outbreaks of the same time period, or uh, even just work in general on it? Historians used to talk about there having been three plague pandemics, right? We had sort of a first, a second, and a third. And now we've kind of blown that up and said, no, at least the second and the third have largely just coalesced into one ongoing plague pandemic since the 14th century. But within Islamic thought, at least, there was the whole Justinian plague notion that that first plague pandemic ended in 750. We have comparatively few studies of it. So historically, it's a, it's a tough period, this early Islamic period. We don't have any written sources with the exception of, the, of some Quranic manuscripts themselves uh, from this period. There are people who've written on this. Um, Lawrence Conrad would be the most prominent, and uh, Yosef van S. 
and a really amazing, very learned book, which happens to be in German, which already sets it out of reach of a lot of American scholarship, unfortunately, uh, has written a wonderful book about the role that play, play, played in early um, Islamic theology at that time. I think that Conrad tried to put it in conversation. He tried to place his discussion of Islamic plague, of the plague of this period in the Muslim communities, in conversation with other things happening in late antiquity, because that was his whole shtick, so to speak, in terms of his academic approach. Von Ness was more focused solely on the, on the Islamic side of things. It's a good question. It's also a good question of like why it's really only been in the last 40 years that we've seen a sustained interest in the history of the plague in the Muslim world. Before that, it's, uh, there are individual scholars who wrote things, but there's not like a, a school or a movement or a whole body. Yeah, I mean, as Lee knows, every time I run into someone who does early Islam, I try to drag them into doing the plague stuff on the, on the early outbreaks because I know it's such a lacuna in the research aside from literally the three people you just mentioned or the two people plus Michael Dolls, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And, well, Dolls, and, well, Dolls would come along, absolutely. Really, in the last 15 years, the number of people working on plague in general has just kind of ballooned in the Muslim world, right? Now we have Stuart Porsche, we have Nikit Barlick, we have... Um, I mean, Andrew Robarts on the later period. I mean, but you're right that that early period is still, um, there still seems to be a lot to be done there. It was, it was more pure curiosity. As I said, I just keep trying to get someone to do it. And I can't. Well, it's just really hard. I think that's part of the, what, what Conrad's work showed is it's, you're working through texts at almost a second or third remove and trying to triangulate down, right? Because all of, and, and, you, and then you're getting into the whole morass of early, the whole debate around early Islam, which is, for those of us who don't work on it, always seems to me like it's a thankless job. Is early Islam less popular as a field of studies? I mean, are less people working on early Islam compared to, I mean, Abbasid or later Islam? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's a pretty robust group of scholars um, working on that very early period, which still perhaps precisely because of its historiographical richness, the beginning of any religious period community attracts, I think, a lot of attention and for reasons which are sometimes problematic, sometimes not. But I think we've seen in the last, last generation a whole new wave of scholars who are really interested in early Quranic history, which often dovetails and overlaps with the early history of the community. So you get you know, books like Fred Donner's Muhammad the Believers, which come out. You have um, Sean Anthony's recent study, which just came out. I mean, so you, I think comparatively speaking, I've always felt now, this is probably the chip on my shoulder, but I've always felt that the early period is quite well studied. Okay, so that's a, a, an overview of plague, but what about scholarship on other diseases? How, how does that look like? So when we think about the, the Muslim world and where they're coming from, just in broad terms, we have this ninth century moment of a translation and accumulation of a great deal of Syriac and Greek writing. And a lot of that did, I mean, that's where we get the, the medical, the Galenic material and the other material. Recently, more attention has also been paid to material coming from India and further east. But by and large, the most writings at the end of the ninth and into the 10th centuries, which are written by Muslim doctors, Christian doctors, writing physicians, writing in Arabic, um, shows again the, the fact that on the one hand, you have a shared Abrahamic heritage. On the other hand, you have a shared Galenic heritage or humoral heritage, which then 
goes through a, a variety of redactions by, by Muslim and uh, Christian doctors writing in Arabic so that by the time you get to Ibn Sina, more famously known in the West as Avicenna in the 11th century, you have entirely digested and naturalized this kind of late antique understanding of medicine and have reformatted it in a way where then it just starts ping-ponging back and forth around different Abrahamic communities in the Mediterranean. So it gets absorbed into, Abbas, into Ibn Sina, who then in the West is Avicenna, becomes a medical authority up until the, at least the 17th century. So that's the way that we begin to get this discourse uh, and we begin to establish various medical works that focus both on general medical theory and on treatment of individual diseases. So I think you very nicely laid out the foundations of what's happening in the medieval world. Maybe it might be good if we zoom in on one particular case and in one particular place. So you've written a lot about Iberia. Um, can we look at perhaps how these foundations are absorbed and thought about during the outbreak of the Black Death? In the middle of the 14th century, we have this, the, the most famous perhaps um, outbreak of uh, Yersinia pestis, which manifests itself both as bubonic and pneumonic and septicemic plague, all these different forms of plague which strike uh, populations throughout the Mediterranean and they reach Iberia in 1348. And the, one of the reasons that I've always been fascinated with Iberia is it's kind of like a, a laboratory of having different communities of faith living in close proximity. And the initial work that I did was very interested in, well, how do we, do we what kind of reactions do we see between these two communities when faced with this natural disaster? I mean, here we have communities living only a few miles apart. And so, um, Unfortunately, to give away the game, in many ways, we don't know. We simply do not know how they reacted. I initially had wanted to write a social history book, and I couldn't because the sources simply were not there. What we get, and this is the reason I, I wanted to stress our ignorance, is because there has been a huge temptation and a drive to make broad generalizations based on a very few comments that are made in intellectual history sources and to do social history out of that. And that's often dangerous when it comes to this period. So we don't know exactly how people reacted. What we do have is we have a body of treatises that people wrote about the plague early on. And in some places, fortunate places with archival records like Barcelona, we actually do get some sense of the demographic impact. In short, the plague was terrible. Roughly 50% of the population of the peninsula died and people wrote treatises about it. And I can talk more about those treatises if you want. Yeah, that would be great. Could you give us maybe a flavor of one of them and how they reacted, I guess, intellectually, we might say, to the plague outbreak? There's the two most famous on the Muslim side of the, um, the arrival of the Black Death in Iberia were written by the vizier of Granada, Ibn al-Khatib, and uh, a contemporary and probably friend of his down the road in Almeria, uh, by the name of Ibn Khatima. And both of these gentlemen, in slightly different ways, uh, believed that the plague could be transmitted between people, individuals, and also between clothing. Ibn Khatima gives us a very uh, vivid description of the dangers of getting too close to the, the market of old clothes, where people would sell basically used, used clothing and said that you don't want to go there. So what we get a sense here is of two Muslim scholars who were primarily scholars of various religious sciences, but who had medical training and background, who paid very close attention to what was happening around them during the plague, 
and really underlined the need of keeping oneself separated from those who were, the, who were sick. What we don't know is we don't know if this related to any kind of policy that was put in place by the societies, the communities that they were part of to try to keep people apart. What we can say is it did not result in anything that we could call today a quarantine, right? So if we consider the quarantine, which the first example of which we are, I'm aware of at least, happens in, over in Dubrovnik and Rukusan um, a little bit later in the 14th century as a keeping of healthy people separate until you can actually see if they're sick or not, nothing like that happened in Granada in the 14th century. So we have these very detailed, engaged intellectual interactions with it, but because of our archival material, we don't actually know how it played out. Well, the reason I want I can highlight that is because I've, I've just read, uh, Ruth McKay has this beautiful book called on, on the plague which hits Castile at the end of the 16th century. And at that point, we have enough archival materials so we can chart on a day-by-day basis how the plague travels. And that's just simply a magisterial study. We have nothing like that for the 14th century. So I feel profoundly ignorant about the 14th century when I look at the archival material that's available three centuries later. And so I don't want to generalize too much from these individual intellectual treatises that are written in a very normative sense, like this is what we should think, this is what you should do, this is what we shouldn't do, And when I don't really know how people out in the streets of Granada were behaving. I mean, my follow-up question would be, how do we know the demographic effects, right? I mean, how do we know that, let's say, half the population dies if the sources we have are mostly intellectual rather than archival or historiographic? Right. Well, one of them is that we have this particular genre in the Muslim world called the tabakat literature or the literature that tries to go through and and write short bios of all the scholars who lived in a certain year. And you can do a a very kind of rough and ready demographic history with this because you can go through and chart well, you can chart all the deaths of the 14th century, and then to see what happened in between the years of 1348 and 51. And indeed, there's this massive spike. And in, in, in the Tabakat literature, it often says so-and-so did perish of the plague. And this work has actually been done by Jorge Lirola uh, in Almeria, who's worked on this, and he's actually mapped out these spikes. So that's one way you can do it. Or you can go to historical chronicles, and people will say things like, and, and they'll give some vastly large number of people died. <laughs> And we never really know what to make of this. If we go to Cairo for the same period, we do get people, this is what Dole's work did, is he goes through and he reads various chroniclers who are making observations about how many people died and how many people were brought to cemeteries. I am always rather skeptical about this work, but that's how we get this, these general flavors of, of demographic impact. And, and it seems to track on both sides, on Christian and Muslim sides of, of Iberia that we're talking you know, we're smack in the ballpark of the 30 to 60% that's often thrown around for the entire Mediterranean. Just out of curiosity, I mean, our time period, late antiquity, has even fewer sources, right? I mean, something like you're describing sounds like a wonderful source that I would love to have. Do people do archaeological work? Do they do pollen samples? Have they poked at other things that I know we've taken a look at that might also shed some light? I know people have done Black Death work, say, in Sweden, for example, but I don't know if something similar has been done for Iberia. I don't, I actually haven't seen any of this that done. So a lot of the, the work that was done, I mean, you guys are well familiar with all of the debate about, uh, well, is this actually plague or not? And then all of the genetic work that's been done on, on teeth and everything else. And it's kind of whole renaissance that we've seen in the last uh, 10, 15 years. I haven't seen anything like that done in Iberia, though. No, everything I've seen is based basically in France. 
it would also be nice to see more work done on North Africa um, during this time period to kind of provide more context. Before we move on, just a quick question about the biographical dictionaries. So how large would these be and how reliable are they? These can be huge. So the largest ones I think that we're aware of that people are now doing all sorts of interesting computational things with are often on the order of, they can get up to 30 volumes, I mean, uh, and contain um, tens of thousands of people. The examples that we have, those are examples I'm, I'm thinking of, of to have to do with the Levant and the further east. But the biographical dictionaries that we have to work with uh, for Iberia are um, Ibn al-Khatib, the same guy who writes this plague treatise, also has a four-volume history of Granada, which is basically like, here's the history of every scholar who's ever come through Granada for the past three centuries, and including everybody during my own time period. It's just a fantastic resource. How reliable are they? They're pretty reliable because we can cross-reference cross them because the same individuals show up in multiple biographical dictionaries. And so we get a good sense. Of course, scholars being scholars, often we have these massive debates over, well, did this guy die in this year or did he die in that other year? And so you do have those types of debates. But generally speaking, it's the, the backbone of a lot of the intellectual history that we do is that we have this genre. And after you spend a lot of time in the Muslim world, I always wonder, like, why do Christians not do this? I can tell you now, like the work I've been doing recently on 17th century Morocco, that of all of the scholars in the 17th century, approximately 9% of them studied the rational or natural sciences. I mean, that's an amazing statement to be able to make. And I can do that because I have many bios of everybody. Well, it does exist in a late antique world, right? You have, you know, Jerome does uh, illustrious men, right? So you have a mini bio that seems to flourish in a fourth, early fifth century context, and then it seems to disappear. See, that would be interesting. Like one of the, the, the nice things about the Muslim world is that we, this is a continuous genre, which from the ninth century onwards continues down to the 20th century. And there's some, a lot of good work has been done on how it's not a neutral or innocent genre. It, it itself is used as a way of projecting various visions of orthodoxy or various theological or legal um, visions into the, into the past. So the people who write these things aren't doing it, have their own biases as they do it. But it, is often done on a very local basis so that a person who writes one of these, we get a lot of information about certain local scholars who might not get swept up in a person who's doing this uh, on a sort of like all of the important people for all of time. Instead, we get these local versions of this as well. It's, it's an invaluable tool for people writing, doing intellectual or social history. The short answer back to you, Lee, is they're pretty reliable as far as we can tell. So how long would each biography be? I mean, are we talking yeah. about, about like a paragraph, a couple of pages? I mean, obviously the more important people will have longer entries, right? right. But, it can go anywhere from just a few in the, in the most minor of scholars might only get a couple of lines and you wouldn't learn anything more about them than that they lived or that they died. In some cases, the death date's not given. In some cases, however, we get five, six, 10, 20 pages. And it will go through and they give you all these fascinating anecdotes about them. Um, it often, um, if they wrote poetry, we'll get a snippet, like a greatest hits. Like this is, if you want to know about this guy, these are, these are the 10 couplets that you really should know by him and move onwards. And, and it's a genre that places a lot of emphasis on the religious sciences in the sense of it's often used to forward a certain vision of devotion. So for people like me who are interested in doctors 
and in uh, our physicians and in other scholars of the natural sciences, those things are often mentioned but are marginalized. There are some, including the uh, Ibn Abi Wusaybiyah's history, actually there's one of these which is basically just on doctors, on physicians uh, from the 13th century, right, from the Islamic East, which has now been translated fully. But that is exceptional. Unfortunately, we don't have too many examples of the genre which treats specifically physicians or medical issues. What distinguishes the Islamic tradition from this is this understanding of the, that you're doing a generational thing, so that it's like all the scholars of this generation, followed by all the scholars of the next, it's a much more comprehensive vision of recording information than kind of the greatest hits version, which I'm familiar with from reading medieval Christian scholars, at least, and also some of the late antique stuff. And it's that, that, that desire to preserve a comprehensive vision of all of the scholars who lived in each generation that allows people to think about it as more of a, um, to use a, a social science term that I do not particularly favor, but a data set that they can then use and crunch in different ways. That's at least what has gotten sort of Orientalists so excited about this genre over time. And that's why some of the first uh, history um, of conversion, Bulliot, all of Richard Bulliot's work on, on conversion curves is based on this genre. And you could only do that with something, his work has been revised since, but you could only presume to do that upon a genre that gave a comprehensive overview. So you brought up the fact that there was no quarantine in Granada. Are there practical public health changes that happened because of the Black Death? That's, I know, uh, an area of debate in the Christian world, whether or not the Black Death makes practical health changes. Do you see anything like that in the Islamic world? Not right off the bat. And, but we don't, see it because of an ab- we don't see it because of an absence of sources. I should note that on Twitter and following COVID, this whole question about an absence of a quarantine in the Muslim world came out quite a bit um, and that there were many people who would point back to one of the most famous of the prophetic traditions associated with this um, expansion, this early expansion of Muslims out of Arabia into the Levant. There was a plague at Emmaus or Amwas in the 630s, late 630s. We don't really know exactly when. And the second Caliph Omar was on his way there with the an army. And they heard the plague had broken out. And we have these long literary accounts of the following conversation, which ensued, in which in the ultimate version, the prophetic tradition is related, and which is kind of like puts an end to the debate about whether people should go forward or return, which says that if you hear the plague is broken out, do not advance towards it. And if you are in a place where the plague is broken out, do not leave it. And this tradition has been adduced a lot um, to justify a notion of quarantine existing in this in this time period. But as I said earlier, that doesn't actually correspond with the quarantine system as we understand it, or it's been used from the in the 14th century onwards, and it wasn't ever Im- implemented in that way. But one last word on quarantine before we leave that: quarantines were never really worked, so they they weren't very successful. Uh, because they couldn't be maintained. And one of the things that I, I was impressed upon me again by reading Ruth McKay's work on the plague in 16th century Castile in a Christian context now, is that they were just broken left and right. And they were broken left and right because of the same things we're seeing right now in, in at least how, with the poor way in which America is dealing with COVID. And that is because of the, the tension between health and economics. People needed to get the food to market to be able to sell it, otherwise they were going to starve. 
So you had to break a quarantine if you wanted not to die. So for at least in Castile and McKay's work, you see a lot of farmers just being like, no, we're not going to deal with this. We can't not go to town or we need to be able to, you have to have this back and forth. So you do see attempts to install quarantines between various urban areas in their rural hinterlands and other urban areas in their rural hinterlands, which work more or less, but they never work perfectly. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm drifting a little bit back to your, your, your question. I don't actually know how this played out in the 14th century in Granada because we just don't have the materials for it to be able to ascertain that. To get back a bit to some potential practical changes, do we see, let's say, differences or new prayers being developed, for example? It's a good question. So you see the whole genre of a plague treatise. So you see new literary forms, and these literary forms do contain prayers. And Doles did a good job of giving an initial overview of this. They contain various occult mechanisms including prayer, but also including uh, talismans that one might wear or other ways. These have parallels with other situations. They're used, the formalization into these treatises, that is new. But it's worth emphasizing how both on Christian and Muslim side of things, where the Black Death is actually, there was a time in European medieval history when the Black Death was considered to have been ushered in a huge break Uh, one which may even have given rise to, quote unquote, the Renaissance, modernity, whatever. I mean, the Black Death was credited with a great deal of stuff. And as I understand the literature, that's very much not the case anymore. We see a lot more continuity. And as you know, the 14th century was pretty bad. A lot of Europe had gone through a lot of famine before then, a lot of bad things had happened. And some of the scholarship that I find most productive stresses how all of these disasters are seen on a continuum. So one of the striking things is that you can have such an a large percentage of the population die, but society pretty much goes on the same as it had before. Prayers which were used for plague may have previously been used against crop failure, against famine, against other things. This is one natural disaster among other natural disasters which does not rupture your basic understanding of your relationship with the divine and with your fellow man. And I think that's important. It's not a sort of an end of times event, which ushers in a new kind of apocalyptic understanding of reality, not for any of the three Abrahamic faiths. I was curious about, based on your point, it seems to be there isn't much of a divide in terms of what's happening, whether you study Islamic history or you study non-Islamic history. So do you think that scholars are basically in agreement on the two sides of those divides? I mean, the reason why the two fields exist separately has to do with languages and training and this kind of stuff. But do you think they've reached broad conclusions that are somewhat similar? I think that's true. I, think, I mean, in terms of social responses, materials will guide the questions that are asked. So a lot of the best work that has been done recently on the Ottoman, the experience of plague in the Ottoman Empire has been done by Nuket Barlik, which takes a look at a way in which the Ottoman Empire responded to the ongoing effects of epidemic disease and how that in some ways may have also uh, contributed to a stronger state over time. And I guess one can make, make similar arguments regarding Italian city-states. I don't know. I mean, you, you could make those, those comparisons. I will note that the, the thought thinking about plague was different in, in, in each individual religious tradition to some extent. And so you played out different arguments and those developed differently. So in, in Christianity, in Christian Iberia, to come back to Iberia, 
contagion and plague continued to be drawn upon by Christian scholars to fulfill their own social fears about relationships with non-Christians, specifically Jews and Muslims, during a time period when, um, as is well known, both Jews and Muslims became increasingly marginalized and ultimately would be thrown out of the peninsula by the end of the 15th and then into the 16th century. And in, in that process, you have people giving sermons and drawing upon the term plague and contagion in a way which is kind of weaponized in this fashion, which is very much not present in the Muslim side of things. That's not at the heart of the, the communities in Iberia or in North Africa at that time. So we have different, shall we say, ways in which the metaphor and the term of plague are used by different communities, even at the same time, they're still drawing on the same medical understanding of what happens. Yeah, it also brings up an interesting point when you touched upon Nuket's book and the idea of an expanding empire and a strengthening state. Obviously, in our context, in a late antique context, the opposite argument is the underlying thought process, right? The plague comes and everyone dies and the empire falls apart, right? It's interesting to see on a very kind of meta level how the plague is used to argue for large, large historical changes and you can have two very different outcomes, as it were. I mean, I guess Stuart Borsch's work, his comparative work on you know, Egypt and England has always been really striking to me in this case. That is to say, here you have two different areas of the same, roughly the same population, same economic and but because of the way in which agriculture is structured and specifically with regard to irrigation, the plague had a tremendously different impact where in England it gave more power to the rural landowners and uh, I mean, not landowners, but workers on land than it could have had before. Whereas in Egypt's case, it just led to a collapse of the entire irrigation system of the, the dam just because of how land rights and ownership had been distributed within the Mamluk system, right? I mean, so yes, I mean, sometimes like, these claims can get out of hand yeah, well, you guys would know more about this, but late antiquity and sort of the fall of Rome and plague and things like that in terms of Kyle Harper's book. But, you know, I mean, I, I do think we've gotten a lot further in our understanding that the plague did not impact the Muslim world in the same way everywhere. So that Egypt, I think, would be impacted quite differently than, say, um, Iberia. Yeah, which I think is a good point and one that we've been trying to, to push for late antiquity as well. But to kind of try to head towards wrapping up this episode... So you mentioned several works now. Could you say a bit more about some of the, the larger questions that the Islamic scholars are currently working on? Well, I think it's you, what's nice now is that the field is rich enough that we have people like Stuart Borsch who continue to work on sort of the economic impact of the plague um, in the East. And then you have people like Nuket who are looking at the plague and also its cultural understanding of how it influences our understanding of death and so forth. And then you have others who are looking more carefully at the later examples of plague treatises, many of which still remain in manuscript, have not been edited. And if they're actually, you know, so many of our sources are still in manuscript. But over, we're getting a much better, I think, understanding of, of these things um, over time. Also, I should note that there's quite a bit of scholarship that's being done in the Arab world, in Morocco and in elsewhere, on these individual uh, plague, sort of how plagues impacted individual spheres. Uh, one, I just want to give a shout out briefly to an Italian uh, scholar, uh, uh, Salvatore Speziale, whose work I have only become familiar with in the last few years, who's written a massive work on the impact of plague on Tunisia in the 17th and 18th centuries and who continues to, to publish on, on, on that. So the field is a lot richer 
than it was if you had asked me 20, 30 years ago. And we see people looking at the economic, cultural, political effects. Um, a lot of good work has been done on what happens when the European powers come into North Africa and the way in which they use the quarantine to advance their own economic interests. Michael Lowe's work. So that's just a taste. So we're in a pretty early stage. I mean, still in a stage of discovery of new texts coming into to light, people telling new stories and, and not revising old ones. Yes, and I think you could say that uh, is true for almost all of Islamic, uh, pre-modern Islamic history. When you look at, you just look at the manuscripts, and you look at the manuscripts and the fact that they haven't been uh, fully cataloged. When every time that we get a library in the Middle East, that gets re-cataloged, and this is also true, of course, with European libraries, but just like hundreds and hundreds of things just appear out of nowhere. And now that things that all much of this has been digitalized, we can now find things online. So not only are we finding more things to recataloging, but more of what is being recataloged is now being spread online in a downloadable form so that I can now access manuscripts by, without ever leaving Vermont that previously I would have had to spend, I don't know, three months and thousands of dollars to go somewhere to go to, to get a chance to make a hand copy of or something like that. So these things all give me hope that the sophistication of our way in which we talk about disease in the muscle world is going to get better a lot better in the coming years i mean for the sake of our listeners i'll just note that islamic studies have had much less time or much less scholarship done on them over the past let's say two centuries compared to christian studies roman studies and so on as i something i have to remind my europeanist colleagues that almost all of their works are printed and, and they've been having them in printed form for a very long time now. And so we still have major Muslim scholars who do not have biographies written about them and whose works remain almost entirely in manuscript. Add to that that perhaps most of us don't have the philological know-how that many of my German predecessors did two centuries ago, where they seem to be able to command like 20 different languages at the drop of a hat. And most of us still struggle with learning Arabic. I mean, it's yeah. fascinating to see how how these structural features of each field really determine how the field is going to behave and how I mean, what would be the dynamics within each of these fields. Well, there's a, a real uh, political economy to this, which um, gives me pause. Like when I talk, when I look and I go to Morocco and talk to some of my Moroccan colleagues about the work they're doing and look at it, and then just think about the economics behind all of this in, in various parts of the Western Academy. Although we can correctly lament the job opportunities and the way in which we're, our salaries are paid and are, are funded. By comparison, people working in most of the Middle East, there are far fewer positions, are not economically as rewarded, and the, the scholars don't get the kind of financial support to travel to international conferences, to publish in, 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 in English, um, and to reach out. And so that type of networking which is going to be at the core of a lot of high quality work that will need to be done in the coming uh, generations, that really should be emphasized. And we should be trying to figure out more and more ways in which we can use the financial resources that are we can access through these large grant giving, be it in Europe, the ERC scenario, be it in America, to bring in more of our colleagues in the Arab world, in my case, specifically in the Arab world, to facilitate making their work better known. Since we're talking about modern stuff, and you actually mentioned it very briefly about uh, some Twitter comments you had participated in, some Twitter conversations, what's the use or non-use of some of this 
medieval Islamic thought on plagues and pandemics that you've done work on during today's COVID-19? I mean, have you seen historians wading in uh, to give advice that people are either following or not following? How has this played out during this pandemic? I'm sure this, you're at least you're familiar with the dynamic. Historians love contingency. We just love to say, well, you know, this situation is not like that situation because of these factors. And I'm going to tell you about these factors because I spent my entire life researching these factors and you're going to listen to me. Uh, representatives of religious faiths usually want to have a kind of a normative fallback position to say that my faith says the following on X subject. And so there's a tension between a historical description of a religious tradition and somebody coming from a specific faith background, a tension which at times can be very productive, but it also can lead to people simply talking past each other. And, and that, that has happened a little bit in the, just looking at COVID and how people have been discussing COVID. So if you, people who want to say things like, well, what's the Muslim attitude to X? My default response is always going to be, well, there's not one, there are many, and then to go on and list them. Whereas I recognize that within Muslim communities, if you're going as a person of faith to your representative, a person of a scholar, an authority within the tradition, you want to know, well, what do I do now? Can I go and pray in the communal mosque? Is that permissible? Do I have to worry about X? Do I have to worry about doing this? What, how do I deal with Hajj? And at, at, at those times, um, People, scholars and, and, and representatives of faith have not always been on the same page. Yeah, I, I was interested in discourse of the past, right? So in Western discourse, broadly speaking, US, UK, we got quite a bit of interest in past pandemics in the context of COVID-19. So would this be the same in, in Muslim communities, Muslim countries, Arabic media? Yes, yes, there has been a lot, a lot of debate, uh, a lot of, of discussion about, about the past. And what's been interesting for me is that certain traditions, certain parts of the past, those parts, unsurprisingly, which most accord with contemporary understandings of germ theory, those parts of the religious past, those examples have been brought up and used. One of the many things the prophet said is that there is no contagion. And it's usually interpreted to have referred to the belief, the pre-Islamic belief that diseases are able to cause things by themselves without God. But nonetheless, it's a little bit of an awkward thing to have the prophet saying when you're looking at the highly contagious nature of say COVID. So when you look at government responses in Muslim world to COVID, you do not find that saying of the prophet being given much airtime. It's not dealt with. Instead, other aspects, the example I gave you before, Omar at Saaf, at this place on the border with Syria, saying that I'm going to go back because that's prophet said, go back. That tradition has been given greater prayer time. The example of what of abolishing communal prayer during a time of floods, right? If there's a huge amount of torrential rain outside, people do not have an obligation to go to the mosque on Friday. Okay. We're going to use that. We're going to, that is an example for what how one should respond to COVID. We also do not go out to endanger ourselves. The Quran says quite clearly you should not basically put yourselves in danger in a way that you would commit suicide. And that's something else which scholars will draw upon. The past is, as it always is, put into a certain narrative to speak to the needs of the present. And some aspects of that past are de-emphasized or not brought up at all, whereas other aspects of the religious tradition and religious examples are foregrounded. And that, of course, um, 
has generally happened in roughly the same way. I am still very interested in why exactly Pakistan has seemed to be a bit of an outlier. That is to say, why in Pakistan the communal prayer lasted and the mosques remained open than they did in other places of the Muslim world, and it seems to me only Pakistan. I haven't gotten a, a real deep understanding of that yet. So I think we've actually nicely come full circle from COVID-19 back to the medieval period, to the late antique medieval period even, and then back on forward to how some of these ideas really influence us today um, and how history is used uh, in different faiths in different ways. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Justin. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. This has really been great. I enjoyed talking to you both. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the editing. (laughs) I thought that was a very good overview of medieval Islamic thought and infectious diseases and specifically plague, although we also covered some leprosy. Yeah, I think it was a really good way both to get an introduction on medieval Islamic thought, as you just said, but also a really wonderful compliment, I think, to the conversation we had with Guy Geltner and Jana Kumans a number of episodes ago, because we got a real sense of high medieval black death, public health, and intellectual thought across most of Europe and the Mediterranean. Yes, although... Personally, I would probably not want to take that comparison too far. I mean, each of these sides, right? So, so the medieval Christian, so to speak, side and the Islamic side, they have different traditions, different sources. The biographical dictionary source, for example, is, is one of these pretty major examples, I think. So I think it, would, it might be a bit risky to use what we know from Islam and, and pose that on like Christian Europe and, and vice versa. No, 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 sure, you're you're definitely correct there, but I meant in the sense of getting a thought world from both sides of the two major faiths and putting together how they thought about these things. And both made the point, I thought, that public health doesn't really change significantly, at least right away on either side of that divide. It would be interesting if you want to add a third person to add someone who works on, say, Jews during the Black Death. Which is something we might actually want to do at some point. One of the interesting things to me, I mean, to follow up on this point, was the fact that these very different sources and traditions that we get for medieval Islam really determine the questions those scholars ask and then also the answers they get. So the questions that interest Justin, for example, are still very different from the questions that interested Guy and Yana in that episode you referred to earlier on. Yeah, I mean, I think that Justin made pretty clear that it's a source issue to an extent, right? He wanted to do a great social history and found he couldn't versus Guy and Yana very much could do and do do a social history of plague and public health in the medieval period. Yeah. So on one hand, the, the, the random patterns of survival of sources really do determine the, the, the way we see the past, which I mean, may be somewhat obvious to some people, but I'm sure not to everyone. The other thing about sources I thought was pretty interesting, and I'm not aware of anyone who has done this, but maybe you've seen this, Lee, is how much the Islamic tradition builds upon the first interaction that people have with plague. So those 630s interactions that Justin talked about a number of times are really the foundations of intellectual thought 
for much of later reactions to plague. So the Black Death outbreak. In our time period, at least in the West, right, the, the Latin sources, I've never seen someone go through, say, Gregory of Tours and look at how Gregory of Tours is used or reused in the 14th century. Yeah, I think the intellectual traditions are very different, but he did point out somewhat of a similarity. So leprosy and Christianity, for example, which seems to have more weight than maybe other diseases. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. What did you think about the the influences between the different fields? So between scholars of medieval Islam and scholars of medieval Europe, so to speak. What was your sense of, of how scholarship is actually done? Are, are these fields siloed or are they in better, greater, more open conversation with each other now? I think it depends on what you mean by the field, right? In a sense, Justin works in a very intellectual history setting, which I think is by nature in some sense is going to be much more of its own language state religion type, right? Than say, if you're doing social history. Yes and no, right? Because he did refer to the 16th or 17th century book on on Spain. So he's clearly reading across fields. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying he's not reading across fields. I mean, that's very obvious that he knows literature that's vast and wide. I just meant in general, I think it depends on what type of questions you're asking, how widely you're reading is all I'm saying, right? So I think by nature, in some ways, he's reading more widely because he works in what we would nebulously call plague studies, right? And plague studies, I think by its nature, because it's thematic and not chronological or not state-based, is automatically going to read, I think, a little more widely than other fields. Yeah, the geographical question here is interesting. I mean, maybe people who work on places such as medieval Spain, medieval Iberia, for example, read more widely or not. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about. I'm not sure we can actually answer that question. I mean, it also goes down to individual scholars. So he obviously has an interest in later Iberian history, and I'm sure not every Islamic Iberianist actually has an interest in later, it's later Iberian history. So again, it's, a, it's not a firm answer. Yeah, that's fair. So one thing I know academics look forward to, Lee, is their summer vacation where they actually get research done. So do you have any plans of what research you want to get done? Yeah, I had plans. I had like pretty big plans. And then my summer vacation started off a couple of weeks ago, and many of these plans are dysfunctional at this point. (laughs) Yeah, having, having a small child at home and having to answer emails from like students, colleagues, admins, as usual, actually takes much more time than I thought it would. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) That's a very detailed answer, Mo. I mean, this is what happens when you get the great tenure-track faculty job, Lee, is you have to answer a lot more emails. Yeah, no, it it is true. And it's also probably the first time I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting a summer break, so to speak. I mean, it's not really a break, right? Because I keep on researching and working. But in previous years, I was either either a postdoc for which the summer didn't really matter or a graduate student for which the summer didn't really matter either, at least not over the past, what, like six, seven years or so. What about you? How How is your summer vacation looking like? I mean, you were on a trip, actually. I, I don't remember when's the last time I went on a trip. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any other grand summer plans, so I guess we'll just keep going. Maybe I'll just stop working suddenly for three or four days. 
and instead, you know, take naps in the afternoon. Maybe that's what I'll do. Just lie down on my couch and sleep. Sounds like a good idea. When's your summer vacation over? So when are the kids supposed to go back to daycare? Middle of August. Right, so you have like a month or so. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's a bunch of writing projects I need to get done now that, as you know, we've wrapped up a few things in the last week or so. Um, so we can get back to actually writing again because we've dealt with technical stuff, which is always fun. Nothing better than fixing footnotes, right, Lee? Especially not your footnotes, Merle. I'll just say that. I've talked to two German people recently who really appreciated my technical footnotes and gave me more technical footnote comments. So there you go. I'm still waiting for the article, your masterpiece article, which will have a one line of text and <laughs> the other page will be footnotes. You're still not there yet. No, I'm not there yet. Give me, give me a couple more months and I'll, I'll get there for you. Okay, so I guess that we can conclude our episode with the, this fascinating discussion of footnotes. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and write yourself a very large footnote. <laughs>